Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. To do so, we just encourage you to vote this Tuesday, the primary. Encourage you to research the candidates beforehand. Google, find out about them, and make an informed decision this, this Tuesday. That very real danger, as always, that uh, the candidates that that uh, reflect godly values. We won't have the opportunity to vote for, and often that's the, the fault of the church because the church isn't voting and when they have the opportunity to do so. And so I encourage you to do so. I also encourage you to uh, review the, the documents that are at the Welcome Center, uh, the copies of the proposed Constitution, the bylaws, the, the teaching statement. Uh, review the, the list of people that we're putting forth before you as uh, consideration as, uh, as elders. It's an exciting time in the life of our church, right? A lot is going on and will continue to go on over the next few months until May the 1st. And so I'd encourage you to review those documents and, and feel a great sense of freedom in contacting those of us in leadership and saying, hey, I'm reading through these documents. Have you thought about this? And they may say, no, we haven't. Or yes, we have. And here's kind of what we're thinking about this. And it'll help us in that March 7th date to have a more informed discussion at Camp Good News that evening service, we'll be talking about the changes to the Constitution, or we'll be talking about the Constitution bylaws, uh, answering any questions you may have at that meeting. We'll be hearing the testimonies of the elder candidates, a lot of excitement. And then on April 25th, during our Sunday school hour, we'll be voting on our final documents, then encourage everyone, of course, to be here for May 2nd as uh, the Bethany Baptist elders come and, and lay hands on our elders and officially commission Bethany Community Church as, as a church. And so, a lot going on between now and May 2nd. I encourage you to review those, those things. Well, please stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40 together. Reading from the English Standard Version. Luke says this, verse 21, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what it is, is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child of Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revela for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. May God encourage us through the reading of his word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. This morning, as we consider more carefully this, this story of Jesus' presentation in the temple, we are reminded that he is your salvation, he is your deliverance, and Father, we need that this morning, we beseech that. We'd ask that you'd give us great wisdom and insight as we seek to understand your word. 
May your Holy Spirit work within our hearts, make them soft and changeable for your glory. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to imagine with me three different scenarios this morning. A mother who finds herself, three different mothers who find themselves in very similar circumstances. Mom number one is downstairs working on something, and she hears a, a thump upstairs, and so she goes upstairs, she opens the bedroom door, and behind that bedroom door, she finds her children kicking and biting and screaming and pulling hair and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and she cries out, God help me. God save me. I am overwhelmed with the conflict in my home. I need your deliverance from this conflict. Please save me. Scenario number two, mom in a similar circumstance to the first mother. Here's the thump upstairs, goes upstairs, opens the door. There's the kicking, the biting, the screaming, the scratching, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth. All those things are taking place. And the mother in this second scenario cries out, God, save me. Save me from the anger that is welling up inside of me. God, I desire to jump into that room and do my own kicking and scratching and screaming and pulling of hair and gnashing of teeth. God, save me from the anger that's within me. I need your salvation. God, help me. Third mother, same scenario. The bump upstairs, goes upstairs, the kicking, the biting, the screaming, the gnashing of teeth, the wailing. She opens the door, sees all that, and she cries out, God, please save me. Please help me. As I see my children engulfed in this conflict, I realize there is something at the core of my being that is messed up. I need your salvation because I don't even have the desire to do the right thing. Please radically transform my heart. Three different types of requests for God's salvation. My suggestion to you this morning, what I believe to be true is this, every single person in here needs God's salvation. Every single person in here needs God's deliverance, needs God to save them. Some of us are like the mother in that third circumstance. We have never come into relationship with God. Our hearts have not been transformed. We need God to do a saving work in our hearts so that we have the ability to be in a relationship with him. Apart from God's salvation in our lives, we're like these, these kicking, biting, screaming, scratching children. We recognize there's something fundamentally wrong at our, our core, and we need God's deliverance and God's salvation, and so some of us this morning may need to cry out, God, save me. I need your salvation from my sin. Transform my heart. Some of us this morning are like the mother in that, that second scenario. There's been a, a moment in time when we've placed our faith in, in Jesus Christ. We've been transformed, and yet the power of sin is still strong within us, it seems, at, at times. And we find ourselves in circumstances in, in which we, we cry out, God, save us, save me from this, this greed, this, this immorality, this anger. God, I, I need your salvation. I want to live in a way that's in accordance with who you've created me to be. God, save me. I, I need your salvation, your deliverance out of this, this desire to sin. And then some of us, all of us, exist in a world from which we need deliverance. This salvation isn't going to happen, hasn't happened yet, but God someday is going to save us from a, a world that's full of conflict, full of injustice, full of all the, the sickness and, and all the terrible things, disasters in our world. That's a different type of salvation. But again, 
what I believe to be true is that every single person in this room needs God's salvation this morning in some sense of that word. Some of you need God's salvation. You need to enter into a relationship with him. And so you need God to save you. Some of you need salvation from your ongoing uh, struggle with sin. You need God's salvation in that sense. And all of us look forward to the day, I hope, when we experience God's ultimate final salvation deliverance from a world of pain and suffering and injustice. This morning as we look at the story of Jesus being presented in Luke chapter 2, what we're going to see, quite simply, is that Jesus is God's salvation. The salvation that God provides for people is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's salvation. And the question that each of us have before us this morning as we encounter Jesus in the temple, like other people are going to encounter Jesus in the temple, the question before us is, what are we going to do with Jesus? As we encounter the person of Jesus and God says, look, this is the salvation I'm going to offer you, how are we going to respond to that salvation that God has offered us, the person of Jesus Christ? Are we going to accept that salvation that God offers and says, yes, I, I, I place my trust in Jesus, I place my, my trust in that salvation you're offering me, and are we going to receive the salvation that God promises us, or are we going to encounter Jesus Christ and say, no thanks, not interested. That's not what I'm going to place my trust in for my deliverance, and as a consequence, are we going to fall we encounter Jesus, are we going to rise or are we going to fall and be overwhelmed by those things from which we need our salvation? We're going to walk through the text together this morning, and as we walk through the text together, I'm going to pause at times and give you some points of application. And these points of application from the text, I believe, are essential things that are true of a person who's experiencing God's salvation. Okay, we'll walk through them together, and I'll, I'll give them to you as we, as we get to them. Let's look at the text. It begins kind of where we ended last week, verse 21. It says at the end of, di- the end of eight days, it's eight days after he's born, Jesus is circumcised, and it says he's given the name Jesus, the, the name that was given to him by the angel. Now, Mo- Mary and Joseph, as they decided what to name Jesus, they didn't pull out a book of you know top 1,000 Hebrew boy names, and so I kind of like the way Jesus sounds with Joseph, uh, Jesus been Joseph. Doesn't it have a nice ring to it. Yeah, I like this name of that. No, this is an important name. It's a name that was important enough that the angel told Mary, name him Jesus. The angel told Joseph, you will call him Jesus. Jesus means God saves, or God's salvation, God's deliverance, Jehovah saves. And so the name Jesus had a deep, theological significance. It was proclaiming that this is God's salvation. This baby, this man. Then we come to verse 22. It says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There's two things that Mary and Joseph are doing in their travel to Jerusalem to the temple. One is the purification process for Mary. It was written in the law that whenever a woman had a child, 33 days later or 40 days later, she was to go through this this process of purification. Furthermore, a child, the firstborn male child, was holy to the Lord and had to be purchased back from the Lord. And so Mary and Joseph don't have to do this, but they decide to do this in the temple in Jerusalem. And so I want you to picture this scene with me. We're in Jerusalem, in the temple, and probably in the courtyard of the Gentiles or the courtyard of the women, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus enter into that area, into the temple area. 
Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus. It's a pretty amazing picture if you think about it. I don't know if you remember a few months ago in November, Ben preached from Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. And in Haggai chapter 1, remember, the people were told to begin the process of rebuilding the temple. The temple had been destroyed, Solomon's temple, this amazing structure had been, had been destroyed, and the people are told to rebuild the temple. And so they begin this process of rebuilding the temple. That's in Haggai chapter 1. That's what Ben preached on. But then you come to Haggai chapter 2, and let me read you something that happens in Haggai chapter 2. You say, where are you going with this? Listen carefully. They begin this process of rebuilding the temple. They obey God. Now remember, Solomon was the wealthiest king the world had ever known. David, before Solomon even began his reign, had, had worked to pile up resources in order to be engaged in this process of building the temple. The people coming out of exile as they try to rebuild the temple have very limited resources, and they kind of begin this work, and they look at the temple and go, eh. And there were some people who had been around for the first temple, and were like, man, it's okay, but man, you should have seen the original temple. That was quite the temple. The people get discouraged, and here's what, here's what God says in verse 3 of Haggai chapter 2. He says, who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And then he goes on, he says, here's some good news, though. Yet, he goes on in verse 6, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Verse 7, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, this second temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, this new temple, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. An amazing thing happened. When the first temple was dedicated, Solomon has this elaborate ceremony. I believe something like 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep are sacrificed. It was this amazing ceremony, this amazing temple. Now there's this second temple. It's a little dinky in comparison, but in this second temple, in walks the perfect sacrifice. Held in his mother's arms. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the hope of the nations, is brought into the temple. His name is Jesus. God is salvation. Let me stop here for a minute and give you the first point of application that I believe is crucial for us to implement if we're going to experience God's salvation. It's this. Know that Jesus is God's provision for salvation. The sacrifices that were offered in the temple were good for covering over of sin, but now into the temple enters Jesus. God is salvation. Jehovah saves. When I was in Texas, there was a really great young man who was in our youth group. We moved from Texas to Peoria, Illinois, and uh, this young man, we kind of stayed in contact with him. And one day we got some, some terrible news. His, his father had, had been killed in, a, in an accident. And we were obviously just very heartbroken for this young man. And I also felt another sense of loss for this, this young man. He was a very gifted, very bright, very sweet uh, young man. And he had a desire to engage in a career that required a four-year degree uh, at college. And... Based upon my understanding of the, this family's financial situation, it was a single dad raising his son, and I knew they didn't have a lot of money, and even under the best circumstances, it would have been very difficult for him to go to school, and I, I felt a, a great sense of, of loss for this young man. In fact, I, I called down to the church that he was attending, and I said, you know, what do you guys, what can we do? How, how can we kind of help this, this young man out? Are you guys going to establish some sort of fund for people to contribute to uh, I think that'd be a great idea. They said, let me get back to you. So they, they contact some people, and they get back to me and said, Daniel, we have some good news. Somehow, this young man's father had paid for a four-year degree for his son years ago. 
he had taken the, the little money that he had as discretionary income and sacrificed a great deal in order to pay for a four-year education anywhere in the state of Texas, any public university in the state of Texas. He had provided for his son's education long ago. Amazing, right? Now, imagine how tragic would it have been for his father to engage in the sacrifice, provide for his child, then pass away in some terrible circumstances, and then his son never find out about the provision his father had made. People never would have found the paperwork and, and known that his, his education had been paid for. It is essential for a person to know about provisions that have been made for them. If you are going to experience the salvation of God, it is essential that you know this, that you know that Jesus is God's provision for salvation. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. If you want to experience God's salvation, you will not find it in your good works. You will not find it in being a better person. You will find it no place else besides the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus enters the temple. God's salvation It's critical, it's crucial that you understand and that you know that. Know that Jesus is God's provision for salvation. Mary and Joseph enter the, the temple. There's another person that's there in the temple as well. Let me introduce you to him. His name is Simeon. Simeon is a, a man, the text tells us, that first of all is a righteous man. Remember several weeks ago we talked about what righteousness in the gospel of Luke means. A person who's righteous is a person who not only does God's law, but believes in God, has faith in God, and that faith in God manifests itself in obedience. That's what righteousness is. It's not just doing the law, it's doing the law based upon a love and a passion for God. The text also tells us that Simeon is a devout man. He's devout. That word devout means to be careful, to follow God's laws. There's a difference here between Simeon and a legalist. Simeon is devout. He's not a legalist. A legalist does this. A legalist goes to God's law and very carefully tries to figure out exactly what the law says and then tries to find favor with God on the basis of keeping commandments. That's a legalist. That's not Simeon. He's devout, not a legalist. He's devout in the sense that he goes to God's word and he very carefully studies it. A legalist crosses his T's. A legalist dots his I's and says, God, look at how lovely my T's are. God, do you see that little dot on the I? Isn't that wonderful? you should really like me because of how great I cross my T's and dot my I's. The devout person also crosses their T's and dots their I's, but they do it out of a joy and a passion for God and his glory, a love for him. The, the person who's devout is careful to obey God's laws, but they do it out of a, a heart that loves God and wants to be in perfect and complete obedience. And sometimes people look at a guy like Simeon and say, oh, man, that guy is so uptight. If you ask Simeon, Simeon, are you uptight? No, I am excited about being obedient to God. That's Simeon. Simeon is righteous. Simeon is devout. What else does the text tell us about Simeon? It tells us that Simeon is waiting for the, the consolation Simeon is waiting for the, the comfort of Israel. Simeon is a person who's studied God's law very carefully, God's word very carefully, and he, he's someone who knows the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Simeon is a man who's eagerly awaiting God's salvation. Because he's eagerly awaiting that salvation, he's intent on, on waiting. 
So Simeon is righteous, he's devout, he's waiting for God's comfort for his people. We also see that Simeon has a very unique situation. The Holy Spirit is on him, and and somehow, we don't know exactly what this looks like, but verse 26 tells us that somehow the Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. The implication, I think, the implication of the text is that this promise was made to Simeon some time ago. It doesn't explicitly tell us that. And the implication also in the text is that Simeon's older now. Again, the text doesn't tell us that, but that seems to be the case. He's prepared to have his ministry completed. Simeon has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And Simeon has continued as a righteous and devout person. He's continued to trust God's promise that he's made to him. Let me stop and give you here the second application for a person that's going to receive God's salvation. You must trust in Jesus for your salvation. You must trust in Jesus for your salvation. Simeon, most likely, week after week, month after month, year after year, continues to trust in, in the Messiah, continues to trust in God's promise for the Messiah. Let me encourage you this morning, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what you need deliverance from, deliverance begins with you knowing that Jesus is God's provision for that deliverance. It continues, and it's, it's essential that you trust in Jesus for that salvation. This last week, maybe you listened to the watch the State of the Union address that President Obama gave, and he had a, a line in there that I think is, is very true. He said, he said that we face in this country not just a deficit in dollars, we face in this country a deficit of trust in our government. I think he's absolutely right. According to some surveys, only 25% of the American people trust Congress to honestly deal with the problems that face our country. Why is there that lack of trust, right? There's a lack of trust because over and over and over again, we've seen, speaking for myself, a lack of willingness on the part of Congress to honestly tackle the problems that face our country. So President Obama is exactly right. There's a deficit of trust there. Simeon has most likely been through some very difficult circumstances, and yet he's continued to trust in God. Perhaps my impression reading this is that God made this promise through the Holy Spirit to him some time ago, and yet Simeon has remained righteous and devout. Year after year goes by, he doesn't encounter the Lord's Christ. Perhaps if this was given to him as a young man, Simeon had this expectation that he would actually see not just the arrival of the Lord's Christ, but he would kind of participate in the establishment of this new kingdom. As he gets older, maybe he's had some some health problems, and it seems from what he says later that he's ready to, to, to die very soon. But he continues to trust that what God says will come about. He trusts that he will see the Lord's Christ Why does he do that? Because he has a a trust in God. He has seen God and his word be faithful, and so Simeon has that same trust in Jesus for his salvation. Let me tell you this again. If you're going to experience God's salvation this morning, there is no one else you may place your trust in apart from the person of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel the good news that is the good news is that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God provided us with the person of Jesus Christ. So that as we place our trust in him alone for our our salvation, we can receive deliverance from whatever it is that we need to receive deliverance from. First and foremost, from a heart that needs to be transformed, but also from the continuing effects of sin. If you're here this morning, You've never received God's salvation. You must know the truth about Jesus Christ. You must know that he is God's provision for salvation. And then you must place your trust, your confidence in him, believing in him alone for your salvation. Let's go on and look at Simeon here. This next section is very exciting. Look at what he does. Uh, Now, again, the picture is, in my mind, 
Mary and Joseph entered, maybe they're in the, the court of the women, and there's Mary and Joseph standing there. They're holding the baby. Uh, Simeon, the text tells us, has been told by the Spirit to go to the temple. He's in Jerusalem, so he goes to the temple, and they're there in this courtyard, and, and the, the temple wasn't like just one or two people in there. It was, it was a place that was teeming with activity. And so there's this, this guy over here, and uh, this guy over here is, is, is kind of in a hurry. He wants to make sure that the sacrifices are performed, says his prayer, and then gets out of there because he's got a lot going on. He, he really values his time. Uh, there's a, a, a person over here, a man over here, who's, who's selling the animals for the sacrifice, and, and he's really excited about the money that he's going to make today. He's a person who values money. There's a person over here who's really excited about seeing someone else in the temple, a person of, of power and prestige, and they want to hang on to, the, to this person, so they're a person who, who values power and prestige. There's a lot of people in the temple. There's a lot of things that they value in the temple. Mary and Joseph come into this temple area. There's the baby Jesus, and Simeon comes into the temple as well, and he makes a beeline for that child, and he takes up the child in his arms, and make no mistake about it, there is nothing else in Simeon's world that's as valuable as that child at that moment. There is nothing else that he's ever experienced in his entire life that has the same value as that baby in that moment. It's the child for whom he's been waiting for for a very long time. He takes up the child in his arms, and listen to what he says. He, he blesses God. He blesses God, and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart at peace according to your word. God, you've, you've kept your promise to me. I, I can go now. The word that he uses there means to, to be released from service. You can release me now. My job is completed. I've seen what you promised I would see. My eyes have seen your salvation, a salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Those are some interesting expressions he uses. Remember, remember Simeon is a person who knows God's word. He says he's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He would have been familiar with Isaiah. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49, 6, the prophet writes, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may be ready to reach the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the faithful Lord, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. In other words, this Messiah, this Lord's Christ, is not just for the people of Israel. He is a light. He's a light, Simeon says, of revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon understood what very few people throughout the rest of the book of Luke and the beginning part of the book of Acts understand that Jesus Christ's message, message and his mission extends far beyond than just national Israel. And yet at the same time, at the same time, he acknowledges that there is a special message and mission for Israel. He says that Jesus is not just going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's also going to be a, a light of glory for the people of Israel, uh, drawing upon Isaiah and Isaiah 46, 13. I will bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, in Jerusalem, for Israel, my glory. Simeon understands this, and he proclaims it. He says, I've seen it this light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Do you sense Simeon's excitement? Do you sense the value that he places upon this child? Here's the next application. The next application is this. If you're going to experience God's salvation, value Jesus more than anything. Value Jesus more than anything. Jesus is not some trinket you wear around your wrist and say, 
yay, I've got salvation because I've got this Jesus trinket. Jesus isn't some guy you put up on your shelf right next to immorality and greed and covetousness and anger. Jesus is of infinite value. And if a person doesn't understand the value of Jesus as being infinitely far greater than anything else in their lives, they haven't understood God's salvation. It's that simple. There's a book I just ordered this past week called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I've, I've mentioned him before. He's kind of an interesting thinker. In this book, it talks about why some people achieve such extraordinary levels of success in life. He says part of it's due to just being in the right place at the right time. It's not necessarily a function of of IQ or intelligence because there's some really intelligent people that aren't very successful. He says part of it's timing, part of it's circumstance, and something else that he says is very significant in determining whether or not a person is successful is something that he calls the 10,000-hour rule. He says that people that achieve great levels of success in playing the violin or in sports invariably have spent at least 10,000 hours focusing on whatever it is they excel at. For a person to reach that level of expert, they've spent at least 10,000 hours on that task. 10,000 hours, that's 1.15 years just doing whatever it is that they've excelled at. What causes a person to spend a year of their life shooting a basketball or working on the swing of a club or or practicing the piano or the violin? What causes, what motivates a person to do those things? I'll tell you this. I don't have that sort of inner drive to do a lot of things. What causes a person to do it is that they value that activity. They love it. It's not a, a drudgery to them. They're excited about that basketball or the golf club or the violin or whatever instrument it is that they're playing. You don't have to beg them to do it. They have this inner drive, this compulsion to engage in that activity. For a person to rightly experience God's salvation, they have to see the value of the person of Jesus Christ. Say, Christ is far more valuable to me than whatever else it is in my life. And let me suggest this to you. If you are going to, first of all, receive God's initial salvation, deliverance from sin, you need to rightly understand the value of the person you're placing your trust in. You cannot come to Jesus and say, okay, I'm going to try this Jesus thing for a little while. Whatever I've been trying hasn't worked, uh, let's try this Jesus thing and, and see how that turns out. And oftentimes I hear gospel messages presented that way, hey, Try, try Jesus. He wants to be your buddy. He wants to be your pal. You're not happy doing this. Why not try this? Hey, that's not the gospel. If you want to know God's salvation, you have to understand Jesus is of infinite value. And you come to him as your Lord. He is, Matthew 13, what does Matthew 13 say about Jesus? He is the, the treasure that's hidden in a field. And a person stumbles upon this treasure, and they go, and they sell everything they have. And they come, and they buy the field, and they get the treasure. And they don't don't say this. They don't say, well, I guess I'll I'll buy this field. It's the right thing to do. I'll get the treasure. (sighs) Fine. Treasure, treasure, treasure. They say, this is a deal. I got to act fast. I got to get stuff together. I got to buy this field. I've got the treasure. I've got to, they're excited about it. They get to do it. Same, Matthew 13 also talks about the the pearl of great price that a person willingly sells all that they have in order to purchase. That's Jesus. And if you want to experience, first of all, his initial salvation, understand this, Jesus is of infinite value. And a person needs to continue in that understanding to continue to experience God's salvation. Sometimes, even those of us who are believers fail to understand the value of Jesus. And in those moments in which we find ourselves in that sin that so easily entangles us, what we've said is this. Jesus is valuable, but not as valuable as my sin. 
I love my sin more than I love Jesus. It is more important to me to be able to get my own way than to get Jesus. It's more important to me to be able to mouth off to my boss than it is to obtain Jesus. It's more important to me, more, this, my lust is more valuable to me than Jesus. My possessions is more valuable to me than Jesus. My, my whatever it is, possessions in life, whatever it is, is more valuable to me than the person of Jesus. A person who has that value, value system is not going to experience God's salvation. Value Jesus more than anything in order to experience the salvation that God promises us. Simeon gets it. He understands it. He rightly values Jesus. He holds him up. He says, I'm ready to go. Some signs that you're properly valuing Jesus in your life. You say, I don't know, am I valuing Jesus? You're going to have a greater willingness to suffer. You're going to increase in your love for other people. You have greater joy in difficult circumstances. You have greater commitment to ministry. It's interesting to me, it seems like both the people that encountered Jesus in the story are, are older. They didn't begin life with great zeal and then kind of say, well, you know, it's time for the younger generation to do something. They're people who have continued in the ministry throughout the rest of their life. That's a proper indication of valuing Jesus. You just write down 1 John 2, 15 through 17 that talks about the love of the world. And a person who rightly values Jesus is going to have a decreasing value of the things of this world. Let's go back to Simeon here. Verse 33, father and mother marveled at what was said about them. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome, think Mary and Joseph. And, and notice to this point, everything that's been said about Jesus has been what? Throughout Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, it's awesome, it's great, it's awesome, it's great, it's aw everything's good news. Simeon does something very profound here. He blesses Mary and Joseph, and then he turns his attention away from Joseph and looks instead at Mary. And why does he do that? Does, does he know that Joseph isn't going to be around in 30-something years? I'm not sure, but for whatever reason, Joseph is out of the picture. He looks at Mary, and he says some very bad news. He says, Mary, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is be, going to be opposed. And by the way, Mary, a sword is going to pierce through your own soul as well. Again, Simeon is immersed in Scripture. He's immersed in the, the text of Scripture, and so he understands about this idea of, of rising and, and falling. He understands that some people are going to accept the message of Jesus Christ, and some people are not. He first of all talks about rising, a good text that deals with this. Again, I'm focusing on the prophet Isaiah to, to, to bring up some of the things that I think are informing Simeon's thinking. Isaiah 28, 16, the prophet Isaiah says there are some people that are going to encounter the Messiah and are going to rise. It says verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 16 of chapter 28, behold, I'm the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste, will, will not be, be hurried about, shaken. That's the people who encounter the Messiah and see him as their foundation. They're going to, to rise with him. Some people are going to fall, I, Simeon says. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, we see some who are going to fall Verse 13 says, Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. And listen to this, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken up. Here's the amazing truth that Simeon is saying, the bad news that Simeon gives Mary and Joseph. Look, some bad things are going to happen as people come into contact with Jesus. It's not all good. 
Some people are going to fear. Uh, some people are going to, to fall, and that brings us up to the fourth application. You need to fear the consequences of rejecting Jesus. The gospel message is a dangerous message. It's like encountering a cobra in a closet. Tread carefully. It's like being chased by a man-eating tiger. And as you're running from this man-eating tiger, there's this stone there. And some people are going to, to climb upon the stone and reach safety. Some people are going to encounter the stone, hit it, stumble, and be devoured. The gospel message is a dangerous message. Those of you who are in here who have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're in more danger now than you were when I began the message. You've encountered this message of Jesus Christ, and it's either going to be a stone that you stumble upon and trip over and are consumed with, or it's going to be a stone that you say, this is a valuable message. I'm going to make this stone the, the cornerstone of my life. I'm going to build my life upon it. It's going to be my, my firm foundation. But make no mistake about it, the message of Jesus Christ is a dangerous message. And you're responsible for how you respond to it, and you need to fear the consequences of rejecting Jesus. That's true for believers and unbelievers. The unbeliever can reject Jesus and ex fail to experience God's salvation whatsoever. The believer can reject Jesus for a period of time and will encounter the discipline of a loving God. In fact, some believers are experience death as a result of failing to heed God's message of salvation in Jesus. Fear the consequences of rejecting him. Then we come to Anna's testimony. Anna's testimony at the end. Verse 36 says, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She's advanced in years, says that she's either 84 or maybe it means that she was 84 lived 84 as a widow. We're not exactly sure what the text is saying there. But the, the point is this. She also is a righteous and devout person. And it says she didn't depart from the temple. She's worshiping. She's fasting. She's praying night and day. Again, not out of obligation, but out of a lo great love for God. And what happens to Anna? It says coming to that, up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think sometimes, if you're like me, you wonder how effective your message is going to be, how effective sharing the gospel with someone is, is going to be. Anna takes this good news concerning the person of Jesus Christ, and she proclaims it to all. And I think that phrase in the text is very interesting. She proclaims it to those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She proclaims it to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. What that tells me is that even in that day, when we know that many people were not seeking Christ, the Messiah of God, there were those who were. There were the Simeons. There were the Annas. There were the people whose hearts God had been working upon. And Anna's message is effective with them as she proclaims the good news concerning the Christ. Leads us to the last application here. You and I must proclaim God's salvation to others. It is a characteristic of a person who rightly understands God's salvation that they have this desire to proclaim it to others. I believe Anna would have also been familiar with the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52, verse 8 says, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. It says, verse 9, he's, the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You and I, who have experienced God's salvation and have the Spirit of God within us now, have no choice but to proclaim that message of God's salvation. 
This past week, I had a very quick interaction with someone. Someone I, I didn't know, didn't know this person. We were just talking about something, and there, in this brief conversation, he's getting ready to, to continue on in his way, and I, I'm continuing this way, and we just happened to, to talk about something very deep very quickly. And he, he mentioned some, some difficult things that were going on in his life, and I had literally five seconds to say something. And this is what I said. I said, well, uh, he knew that I'd somehow, we just real quickly knew that I was a pastor. And I said, well, you know, the, the church is a, a great place. The church loves you and desire, or loves the people that are in there and desires to encourage them through difficult circumstances. Okay, well, I'll see you later. And as I turned, I thought, what have I done? I had five seconds. And I talked about the people in the church. Now, what I said isn't wrong. It's true. I believe it. But why is it true? Why do we love each other? Why are we a great place for a person to be? Because of the person of Jesus Christ. Because we've experienced salvation from Jesus, our lives have been transformed. We've come to the hidden treasure. We know him. We've put our trust in him. We value him. We fear the consequences of, of rejecting him, and now we've experienced this great salvation of God. That's what I should have said. I should have taught, pointed this man to Jesus. A person who's experienced God's salvation, proclaims God's salvation to others. A dad is at home, hears the noise upstairs, walks into the room and sees the kicking, the biting, the screaming. He desires God's deliverance. (laughs) He desires God deliverance not just from the circumstance but from the heart the core of his being the attitudes and the dad the mom the brother the sister the person in the workplace receive God's salvation from one source and one source only God's salvation is Jesus Christ let's pray Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We know that he's your provision. We trust in him alone for our salvation. And Father, we value him more than anything else. And if there's someone here this morning who's never even placed their their trust in him for their salvation, their initial salvation, to begin a relationship with you, I'm confident that's the case. I pray that you would work upon this person's heart. Now as I pray, they would turn from their sins and place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, alone for their salvation. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.